It's good to see you. Uh, we are in a, in a study in, in the book of 1 John, and so I'm going to invite you to turn there tonight. We're in this series that's called Because He Loves Us, and uh, we're, we're looking at the book of 1 John through that lens of because he loves us, what does that mean for our lives, and what is God trying to teach us about his love? And so tonight we find ourselves in chapter 4, Verses 13, by the way, my name's Eric. Sorry for the lack of introduction. Good to see you. Um, let's read. This is starting in, in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he and God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Even in, in reading that at the end, I, if you've been around for a while, there's, there's some themes that keep coming up with John. There's these themes that he keeps coming back to. And one of them is this theme of, of love and hate, how it's impossible for love and hate to coexist together. And, and, and he'll make some of these statements over and over and over again. And even it, I think that it's possible that if you've been around for us in this series, you're starting to feel like, okay, I get it. I get it. Less hate, more love. Let's move on and eat chili. There's chili later. But um, John, he does keep coming back to these themes. He keeps expounding on them. And, and tonight, perhaps you notice that he, he did something different right in the middle of our passage, where right before he starts to talk about love and hate, he started to talk about fear. And why would he do that? Why would, why would John kind of nuance his, his argument that you can't love God and hate your brother by talking about fear? And I think it's because he knows that underneath all the hate, and that could be expressed in, in violence or racism or sexism or bullying, all the hate that is in our world, underneath all of that is something that might actually be worse, and it's fear. And the truth is, you don't have to be a Christian to believe this, that underneath hate is fear. These are some quotes from some of the greatest thinkers that our world has ever had. William Shakespeare said, In time, we hate that which we often fear. Mahatma Gandhi once said, The enemy is fear. We think it is hate, but it is fear. And someone else said this, fear is the path to the dark side. 
fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. From the, from the great mind of Yoda. <laughs> so not all these great thinkers are from our planet. They're from unknown planets. Um, but psychologists and anthropologists and sociologists and philosophers and poets and songwriters all agree. They all know something that underneath all of these horrific expressions of, of hate that we see, underneath all of that is fear. And so tonight what, um, what I'm going to suggest to you first is that they didn't come up with this idea. It was God himself who revealed this to us in his word. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to, I think, discover, I hope discover together, how do we extinguish fear that leads to hate from our lives? It's going to be our, our journey tonight through the scriptures. And, and the first thing I want to suggest to you is that um, the problem of fear and hate is not so much an interpersonal problem. It, it manifests itself that way. But the problem of, of the kind of fear that leads to hate is actually a spiritual problem. Another way of saying it is that the problem in our world is not so much that we, not so much the way we relate to people, but the way that we relate to God. Because the way we relate to one another is always a reflection of the way we relate to God. And I think that distinguishes what John is saying, what the biblical writers say from, from Gandhi and Shakespeare and, and Yoda is that John is saying that the relationship between a human being and his or her maker is the relationship that sets the tone for every other relationship that they have. And this is true in the entirety of scriptures. Perhaps a few weeks ago, if you were here when we were studying in John chapter 3, you, um, you heard John mention this character in the scriptures named Cain. He, he refers to the story of Cain and Abel, which is in Genesis chapter 4. It's, it's the first story of, of violence and this sort of, um, well, murder in, in the world is, is between these two brothers. One brother kills his, his younger brother. And in John 3.15, uh, John says, uh, don't be like Cain. And he goes even further. He says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here he is again, just bringing up this theme of hate and how it's the opposite of love. And he goes back to the beginning of the biblical story and discovered something this, this week that I found to be really interesting. Right before Genesis 4, which is about the fifth page of the Bible, where we hear and, and learn about the story of, of Cain murdering Abel, and right before that is Genesis 3, which is the story of how sin came to enter into the world. And I think you probably um, know the story. Adam and Eve are, are deceived by the serpent, and they rebel against God. They eat from the tree. And, um, and something happens to them immediately. They, they realize that they're naked. And it says that they're ashamed, and so they cover themselves. But I want to read to you what it says to us in Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to start reading in verse 8, and I want you to listen for this. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Here we are at the beginning of the story of, of sin, this disruption that enters into the world. And, and, and right before hate and violence come into the world, there's fear. And it tells us that, that fear is something that God did not intend for us to experience. And when I'm talking about fear, I'm talking about Adam and Eve being afraid and terrified of God himself. Which is different than the theme of the, the fear of the Lord, which we'll read throughout the scriptures, which is the beginning of wisdom. This, that's a different sermon. But, but this is the kind of fear that is crippling. This is the kind of fear that causes people to run and hide in shame. It's not first and foremost fear between two people. It's fear between a person and God. And so what is happening tonight in our passage and what, and what I hope that we'll do is when we say that we want to understand and, and see how God wants to rid us of fear, it's even more specific than that. God wants to rid us of the fear that we have towards him. And the question is, is how is he going to do that? And it's very simple. It's one word. It's love. Tonight, as we look into the love of God, as we explore that, as we, um, I hope, are transformed by that, we're going to see three realities about God's love. And the first is this. God's love is initiating. The second is that God's love is abiding. And finally, we'll see that God's love is everlasting. Initiating abiding, everlasting. What does it mean for God's love to be initiating? Well, I think it certainly means this. It means that God takes the first step. God, who actually is love, has taken the first step towards us. If you look back in our passage in, in 1 John 4 and in verse 13, I want to read this again to you. It says in that verse, at the end part of that verse, it says that he has given us of his spirit. And in verse 14, at the end of that, it says, God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. You see, our passage starts by, by letting us know, by making, it, making us infinitely aware of the reality that it's actually God's activity that is most prominent in this passage. It says, he has given and he has sent this is God's activity. This is about salvation. This is about what God has done for us. Last week, we looked at uh, chapter 4, verse 10, this amazing passage. It says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, not that we took the first step, but that he loved us, that he took the first step by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
What we learn of the Holy Spirit that is mentioned in, in verse 13 is the Holy Spirit's role is to testify to this. The Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to assure us of this, that God has actually in Christ saved us. And we can never disconnect anything that we say about the love of God. It can never be disconnected from what we learn about the cross of Christ, about the way that God has saved us. When we disconnect the love of God from the cross of Christ, then we end up with a vague sort of mystical transcendent God who we have to go through hoops to understand. And what John does is he puts God in front of us in flesh and bones and he shows us him on a cross and he says, this is love. This is God taking the first step. This is God taking even the final step by creating a means for us to know and be saved by him. It's God that takes the first step. Did you notice that in the story of Adam and Eve that we looked at, Adam and Eve, if, if, if you look back in the story, Adam and Eve are hiding. Adam and Eve are exposed. They're ashamed. They've, they've run away. And where is God? He's coming after them. He's pursuing them. He's initiating relationship when they chose to break it. Why? Because God is love. And love takes the first step. Probably some of you tonight here would maybe use a word to describe yourself spiritually as, maybe you'd use the word to describe yourself as, as I'm a seeker. I'm seeking God. I'm seeking out Jesus. I'm trying to find out what God is all about. Well, what John would tell us tonight is that actually God is seeking you. And if you're here seeking God, that is, that is the, I would say, perhaps the ultimate evidence that he's seeking you. It's because God's pursuing you. He wants to know you. He wants to reveal to you his initiating love, which can transform your life. Perhaps some of us here, um, we're like Adam and Eve. We, we begin to think that if, if God finds out what I've done, if God only knew what I've done against him, there's no way he could love me. He would only have punishment for me. But the message that John reveals to us is that Jesus himself has dealt with the punishment of sin. Jesus himself has borne the weight of sin and he takes the first step. So anything that we could say about God, about his love, is that he has come after us. And that's where it starts. And John's saying, I believe, even more than that, John is telling us that God's love is abiding. You can't get away from the word abide in the writings of John. In the chapters that lead up to our text today in 1 John, John uses this word abide over 20 times. If you read through the gospel of John, he'll use that same word several dozen times. Even in these passages we read tonight, it comes up at least five times. So what does the word abide mean? <clears throat> Perhaps um, it can simply mean to dwell that word abide is intentionally close to the word that we use, abode, when we say, come to my humble abode. 
We're talking about the place that we live, talking about the place that we dwell. But it's interesting for, for John, when he uses the word abide, especially in his gospel, he most often is using it to describe the way that the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the way that they relate to one another. He's talking about the way God acts within the Godhead. Now I'm going to read you some verses. You don't have to turn there, but this, these are profound and amazing truths. In John chapter 1, we, we find Jesus. The scene is that he's about to be baptized by John the Baptist. And, and John the Apostle writes this. He says in, in John 1.32, he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now that word remained that you see is the same word as abide. In John 14.10, it says this, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells or abides in me does his work. In John 15.10, it says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So if we're going to learn what this, this theme of abiding means, we, we start not by figuring out how, we, how to do that, but we start by discovering what is, what is that like for God. Cornelius Plantinga says this about the nature of the relationship with the triune God. He says, The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life overflows with regard for others. So we learn something about God here when we use the word abide. We learn that God within himself, within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has existed eternally in a loving relationship. It's a profound mystery. It's an amazing truth, but perhaps it's even more amazing that you consider that the people of God the church, you and I have been invited into that mutual abiding. God reveals to us what, what his nature is like, what his relationship is like, how, how he is eternally and says, I'm inviting you to experience that. John is saying that God abides in us and we abide in him. So what does that mean? I think that what it, it must mean that when God says we abide in him, it means that we are invited to share in the love of God. We're invited to share in the love that God experiences within himself. Whatever abiding means, it, it must mean something like that. It's relational. It's it's an invitation that God gives to us. It's interesting, in John 15, 10, he says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, two verses later, Jesus says to his disciples, my commandment to you 
is that you would love one another. So in John 15, whatever, whatever we say about, about abiding in God's love, we, we know that it's a relational thing something God experiences and then invites us into. And in verse 17 of our, of our passage, he says this. He says, by this is love perfected with us. I love that word, that word perfected. That word perfected doesn't necessarily mean um, the same thing that we, when we use the word perfect, we usually mean something like flawless um, or 100%. But in the, in the scriptures, that word for perfect is, is closer to the word complete. It's the Greek word telos. And I think what John is getting at is that love is incomplete until it is shared in. And I'll say even further, our experience of God's love is incomplete until we share in it. I'll never forget, when I, when I was dating my wife, um, we'd been dating for a while, and uh, she was the one that got the words out first. I remember we were having this amazing conversation, and I, was, I, I think I was like pouring out my soul, like bearing my soul to her, and then she just blurts out in the middle of our conversation, I love you. And then her very next words were, don't say it back, <laughs> which killed the moment a little bit. She said, I love you, but I don't want you to just say it because you heard me say it. And I was bummed. I was disappointed, right? Like I was, I was happy to hear it, but, but there was something incomplete about the moment because we hadn't totally shared in it, right? So I had to orchestrate this grand thing to say something that I wanted to say right then. <laughs> so love is incomplete until it's shared in. Our experience of God's love, I want you to hear me, our experience of God's love is incomplete until we share it. And that's why all throughout John's writing, he, he'll talk about the love of God and he'll say, you can't say that you love God and not love your brother. Why would he say that? Because the love of God, abiding in the love of God is incomplete until we've shared it, until we've given it away. And this is what God is working towards completing in us. This is what God is, is doing in us. This is his work of perfection in us, is, is that we would receive his love and that it would spread all throughout the world. I think that we'll know that God's love has gotten a hold of us when we're giving it away, and in particular to one another. So God's love is abiding, and we said earlier that God's love is initiating. But the final thing that I want to tell you tonight that this passage reveals is that God's love is everlasting. God's love is eternal. God's love for us is unending. And as we think about this as it relates back to our theme of fear, I think this is of particular importance to us. Oftentimes what we fear is out in the future. This is, at least this is my story. I'm, I'm fearful, I'm worried. How are my kids going to turn out? How is this relationship going to turn out? 
Am I going to find out something about my house? Like there's black mold growing something. You know what I mean? It's always like, it's like something out there in the future. I remember when, when Kaufman, when Chris Kaufman, um, I call him Kaufman. You should call him Pastor Christopher. Um, but when he got back from Myanmar, he told this story, this amazing story about how they went to this village. Um, God did amazing things. I won't ruin the story, but one thing, the only thing that I really heard in that story was he said, yeah, and in this village everywhere, it's, it's known that they have cobras everywhere. And snakes are literally the greatest fear in my life. And that's why I believe that the words fear and hate are interchangeable. I fear snakes. I hate snakes. I'm terrified of them. And I remember when he told me, I remember he was like, and then, and then like the story ended with like, and you need to go to Myanmar. And I was like, not a chance, cobras. <laughs> We're fearful about things that are oftentimes are out in the future. And I think John knows this. I know that God knows this. And I think it's why he says what he says next. In verse 17, I, wanna, I want you to see this. He says, by this is love perfected with us. And that's what he's talking about. This is, this is how God's abiding love perfects us. And this is the outcome. I want to read this to you. He says that we have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John gives us this vision of, of the day of judgment. Almost every biblical writer talks about the day of the Lord or, or, or the day of God's judgment, when God's justice will come to reign on the earth and he will cleanse the earth of of sin and destruction. And John says, what, what, I, what I want you to do, church, what I want you to do, Christian, is I want you to look ahead to that day with confidence. He says, I want you to look ahead to that day with assurance. And we consider back to where we started. Fear leads to hate, which leads to suffering and violence. And John is going after our fear. He's, he's trying to recreate our distorted view of God. He's trying to um, renew our diminished view of the love of God. And he does that by saying, I want you to go ahead and look to the very end. And he says that, I believe, because he wants us to know that if we can stand in that day in confidence, then certainly we could stand in this day in confidence. If you can look ahead to that day when God will deal with the sin of the world and you can be free from the fear of punishment, won't that have an amazing effect on the way you live now? Isn't being heavenly minded in that way going to renew the life that you live now? Doesn't it give us a great hope and assurance? I think that will, that's what God is after in us. This week I was struck by the words of Martin Luther King. On April 3rd, 1968, just over 50 years ago, he delivered his last speech, his final speech. It was entitled, 
I've been to the mountaintop. And this was the day before he was assassinated. And I was struck in particular by the way he closed this speech. I'll put it on the screen for you, um, but I'm going to read this. This is how he ended. These are his closing remarks. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. And listen to this. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. His last public words the day before his death. And that's pretty amazing. And that's pretty good. That's an amazing summary of, of what we're talking about, how God's love being everlasting and what it can do in us. But I think maybe Jesus even himself did one better when it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. When you have your eyes set on the everlasting and eternal and enduring love of God, it strengthens you for whatever is happening in our life now. And there's a problem, I think, sometimes in, in our churches. We, we have this idea that we could be so, um, with such excitement looking ahead to heaven, that that would actually de deter from what we're doing now. And that's a terrible mistake. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. God in his scriptures is pointing us to his everlasting love. And I love the way this passage flows. It starts by, by revealing that there's actually nothing we've done to earn our salvation. It wasn't us that took the first step. God initiated. And then in our life now, it's God who's abiding in us. It's his life. It's his love. We're invited to share in it with him and with each other. And we can live our lives confidently looking to the end. Go ahead. Look to the end. When fear comes up in your life, John says, look to the end. If you can trust God for that, certainly he'll be with you right now. The truth is, is that God's love will complete in you what he has 
and store. The love of God is God's mission in your life to make you like Christ. There's nothing we can do to to deserve it. There's nothing we can do to cause it to leave from us. John's spiritual brother says this, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the answer to fear. And that is the answer to hate. It's God's love for us. His transforming love in our lives that he invites us into. And what better place to experience that than to come to the table tonight? If you're a follower of Jesus, by all means, come to the table tonight. Perhaps as you do, what you want to do is you want to remember that God has made a way. He's taken the first step. For some of us, we, we need to come to the table each week to remember that God's love is, is continual. That it's right here and it's right now abiding in us. Perhaps there's some of, of us that are crippled by fear as we look ahead to the future and, and communion tonight is an invitation to, to know that on that day we'll stand and we can be confident in God and his love. So let's do that tonight. Come to the table, come in faith, Come with assurance. Tonight, we're going we're gonna to worship for a while together through singing. So just come to the table and, and take the elements, the bread and the cup. Take them back to where you are. If you're sitting next to someone you like, you can share communion together. Pray for one another. But let's experience and receive and trust in the love God has for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you your love for us is, is unending. We thank you, Lord, for all the ways that you reveal that to us. And we ask, Lord, tonight that by your spirit, your love would transform us from the inside out. That as we look to Jesus in communion, as we remember his life and his death and his sacrifice, we'd see the love of God on display. That we would live grateful for that, that we would respond in faith and worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.